0: Good morning, we're going to keep walking through the gospel of John, so if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 41, and we'll read through verse 51, and we'll see what we can discover in this paragraph where John continues to talk about the bread of life, where Jesus really is continuing to Tell everyone that he is the bread of life. So let's see if we can make this work. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we give glory to your name and we thank you, Father, For the glorious, beautiful, wonderful, miraculous, awe-inspiring gift of your Son and Him being our bread of life. Oh Lord, we just thank you. How can we say anything else but thank you that you give us so much through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? Oh Lord, we pray and ask that... As we walk through these verses over the next several minutes, that you would just open our eyes and our hearts that we would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, see and hear exactly the things that we need to see and hear as a church community and as individuals. For following you and walking in your ways and living in the fullness of who you've called us to be and the fullness of all that you give us. And we ask this, Father, believing that you desire to give good gifts to your children. And I ask, Father, that specifically for me, that you would put the words in my mouth that need to be spoken and that all the words I say would be the words you would have me say. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So when we start out here with verse 41, kind of the first thing that kind of, I don't know, I mean, the first thing that jumps out to me, these folks seem to grumble a lot. And maybe that's not a coincidence, I mean, all of John's efforts throughout this entire chapter six is to point out in parallel Jesus now here in this moment the day before out on this Galilean hillside in the desolate place where he miraculously feeds the 5000 people. And now the next day here in Capernaum where they are confronting him and trying to figure out who is this guy is so much like what happened in the Exodus and with the manna. And the giving of the quail by the Lord God through Moses there in the wilderness after crossing out of the Red Sea. And that passage is just filled with their grumblings in the wilderness. And so here's another group in wilderness standing before the great bread of life, grumbling about what he's doing, or more accurately, what he's not doing. They're really grumbling about what he's not doing. They want him to give them some more bread. I don't know. I, mean, I never have that problem. I'm sure you don't either. I'm not satisfied with what he's giving me, or he's not giving it fast enough. But more to it than that, I mean, it's kind of understandable that we understand that they're coming there looking for more bread. That's not that unreasonable. But it's this fickleness, this some kind of sort of just the fickleness of their hearts, because yesterday they wanted to make Jesus a king. It says in verse 15, they even called him the great prophet in verse 14. I mean, it hasn't even been 24 hours since they were ready to make him king and called him the great prophet. And now today, well, hey, this is just Joseph's son. We know who this really is. Wait, What? How did that happen? How did you get, how how do you go from, this is the great prophet. We should make him king. Oh, this is just Joseph's son. We know who this guy is. He's nothing special. I mean, I, I understand the, you know, the losing confidence in someone because they disappointed you or didn't do what you wanted. But this seems pretty extreme. They just jump from he's the Messiah to he's just another one of Joseph's boys. I don't know how to make sense of that. I at least take more than 24 hours to lose faith in Jesus. It at least takes me 26. at least takes me 26 hours to go from I know he's going to carry me through this to why isn't he not carrying me through this? Why am I having to do this all by myself? Of course, we know that's a lie. There's no such thing as us doing it by ourselves. It's just feeling like it or us believing the lie that we're doing it by ourselves. Then comes this amazing statement that Jesus makes in verse 44. You know, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. What does he mean by this thing of no one can come to him unless God draws him? And what does it mean for God to draw somebody? What does that look like? Well, we all kind of know what it looks like. Maybe we've even experienced it ourselves where we just sense this draw towards this church or towards this message that we hear in the word or or to something that we cannot explain. It doesn't make sense to us. I don't even like these people. Why am I wanting to be with them? I don't even believe in this Jesus dude. Why do I want to keep hearing this guy tell me about him? This unexplainable need to hear more, even though it contradicts what we think and believe at the moment. It's almost as if our resistance is being overpowered by his draw. In fact, that's exactly what's happening. His pull towards us and pulling us towards him is stronger than our resistance. And all who have been chosen by the father to come to him. Come to him. And then once we come to him. This amazing statement that I will raise him up on the last day. That believers experience resurrection. This is crazy. Jesus is promising the promise of life after death. That death while real and harsh, is not the end. He is promising that the grave is not where we find our end. Jesus promises us as his children who believe in him that he will raise us up out of the grave and bring us into eternal life. Now, there's a problem here, though, and a kind of uncomfortable one. It's the one that nobody really wants to talk about. And we just always dance around it and avoid it for as long as possible. And that as long as possible is until somebody dies. And we have to go to a funeral. Then we can't dance around it anymore. The promise of resurrection for us, the problem is that it's not realized in this world. right? I mean, in fact, we know empirically by walking into any cemetery that is not experienced and realized in this world. There are hundreds of graves with the bones of men and women still in them who have died, some of them hundreds of years ago, and they've not experienced resurrection like Jesus promised. Yet, Jesus said himself in verse 44, that I will raise him up on the last day. The promise of resurrection power comes not in never tasting death, but in death not having a permanent hold on us. Listen, I openly confess to you that death having a hold over somebody for hundreds of years feels pretty permanent, right? But in the cosmic understanding of God with all of eternity in front of him and behind him and the eon of time that this world exists, whatever that is, that doesn't seem that long to him, apparently. And while many persons will come to an untimely death, some of them while they're still in the prime of their lives, most of us experience death as a result of a long life, one where the body has failed and we no longer have the physical strength to keep going. We've all observed it in Relatives and loved ones who've lived a long life and come to their ends. And apart from this physical aspect of aging where we just run out of gas, if you want to use that term, we also have the emotional and spiritual depletion that comes from being in this fallen world. And at the end, we're just really ready to go. At least that's what I've observed with those who I've been with at their death. They're just ready to go. Death, then, is a relief. It's an end to suffering and the consequences of us living in this fallen world. And just getting out of this world is what most of society and culture thinks death is. But it's not. Because of the promise of eternal life with Jesus, we know that death brings so much more than the end of suffering. You could almost say that the end of suffering is just the icing on the cake because death for the believer who follows Jesus and knows him as their savior. It it brings the birth of new life, life without the burdens of all the things we experience here, the burdens of this fallen world and our fallen flesh. It for all of us who believe in Jesus, physical death brings the first taste of life without sin. I don't even know how to comprehend that. I don't know how to comprehend getting through five minutes without feeling sin and thinking sin and the idea that there could be a moment coming in the future when it just won't be there anymore and that more importantly than not than being able to taste life without sin is that life will be without a will to sin like the desire to sin won't even be there anymore like I have no idea what that's like. But I'm really looking forward to trying it out. See, God's word promises us that a death. The believer's spirit or soul goes immediately to be with our Lord Jesus in heaven. That is what this word promises us. That death comes and then immediately we go into the presence of the Lord. We begin to experience all the glories and all the things that are found there because of the eternal life that Jesus has bought us with his blood. However, we do so not as complete persons. Unfortunately, we are there with him as spirit beings, with our intellectual understanding and our emotional feelings, but we are absent from our bodies. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That is what Paul said. And it is our resurrection from the grave on the last day when we fully realize This promise of being remade and reborn into a full, whole person again. The the promise of Jesus for eternal life as a whole person, heart, mind, soul, and body. Yet, this is a big yet, it is not as if we have nothing in the here and now. As good as life after death will be for those of us who follow Christ and believe in him, we still can enjoy life here and now, even in these broken, fallen bodies, in this broken and fallen world. I don't know if that, how that strikes you. I read the news. I pay attention to things that are happening around me in this state, in this country, in this world, this globe. We just read about what was happening in Ukraine this past year and one of the stories of God's provisions and protections. You don't need protecting if everything is fantastic. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you that way before, but if everything's great, you don't need being protected from something. The idea that God's going to protect us means there's something to be protected from. There's something that wants to hurt me, whether it's physically or spiritually or emotionally. It's not a great place sometimes, yet we can still enjoy life here on this earth Because of what Jesus gives us, remember? See, the experience for believers is that we are taught by God. Wait, just, okay, just let that sink in for a second. God himself teaches us. That was like really watershed moment for these people. This was like, what are you talking about? It just doesn't happen, Jesus, that God teaches us. That's why he sends us the law and the prophets. See, Jesus giving himself buys us eternal life, but it also is easy for us to think that eternal life starts when we physically die. But that's not true. Our eternal life doesn't start when we physically die, where we just accept Jesus and we're hanging on, with both hands at the end of the rope until we die. No, that's that's not correct. That's incorrect. Eternal life starts when God draws us to him and we believe in Jesus. It begins when we experience the new birth in Christ and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's the beginning of eternal life. We never get to fully realize it and experience it in its fullness here in this world But it ain't like it's nothing either. It's a pretty good something. One of the key differences between the Old and the New Testament is this daily dwelling presence of the Holy Spirit with God's people. See, the Old Testament was marked by rare and temporary indwelling of the Holy Spirit in individuals. Forget a large group of people getting to have the Holy Spirit fall upon them. You're just lucky to have one or two people in the entire community that get it. And even they only get it for a short period of time. The New Testament is differentiated by the Holy Spirit's daily presence with every believer and daily fellowship with God the Father. As a result, our Father is showing us things and teaching us himself every day the Spirit's indwelling presence in us. It is, in a way that is hard to articulate, at least for me it's hard to articulate, the ultimate fulfillment of the one-flesh union promised in Genesis 2.24. We even use the language of one-flesh union in describing our relationship with God through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We talk about intimacy with God as a gift, something we receive, a benefit of our faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think it's just happenstance. I think it's by God's design that we use the same language for intimacy with him through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that we talk about in union between the husband and wife in marriage. Because ultimately that event itself and the gift of human sexuality between husband and wife in the practice of marriage symbolizes and gives us a taste of what the one flesh union is like and the promise of what we can have in that kind of union and intimacy with God. Not to get too far off the subject, but I think that's a reason the kingdom of darkness seeks to corrupt sexuality if we can keep them from having a taste of one flesh union with each other, well, then we can keep them from having a taste of one flesh union with the father. Even the amazing intimacy that we have with God now is really just a poor man's meager provision compared to what is coming though. <laughs> Listen, as great as it is to experience that intimate fellowship with God, whether it happens once a week or once a day, as as, Fantastic as it is, it's still just nothing compared to what's coming. And I know this, and I can assert this to you with absolute confidence because of the very Old Testament scripture that Jesus quotes here in verse 45. He quotes from Isaiah 54, verse 13, the verses that immediately follow the suffering servant that tells us who the Messiah is and what he accomplishes. He follows them up with all of chapter 54. And let's take a quick look at this Isaiah 54, verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Now, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty stunning. But let's just back up a little bit and start our reading at verse 11 of chapter 54. Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. That sounds like a pretty unpleasant world to be living in. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. Doesn't that sound like a description of a structure that you've, heard before somewhere. Now turn to Revelation chapter 21. We'll read verses 9 through 21 just because I can't help myself to keep from reading all of them. The 21st chapter of the book of Revelation starting in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates were 12 angels. And on the gates of the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east gate three, on the north gate three, on the south gate three, and on the west gate three. Just like the arrangement of the tribes of Israel around the tabernacle in the wilderness three on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls the city lies four square its length the same as its width and he measured the city with his rod 12000 stadia almost 1500 miles okay grasp this picture in your mind a city the new jerusalem that starts in vancouver goes all the way down south of Los Angeles, all the way east over to Dallas, and all the way back north into Quebec. That's a big city. A really big city. Oh, and it's a square, which means that its length and its width and its height are all the same measurement. So it's 1,500 miles high? This is a big city. And to really grasp the meaning of something like this physically, geographically large city, you got to remember that the city of Jerusalem was only two miles by three miles in John's day when he wrote this. Even in his day, at the end of his life in AD 90, the city of Jerusalem was maybe three miles by four miles at the most, at the absolute biggest measurement possible of his day. And The new Jerusalem is going to be 1,500 miles wide and tall and long. This is just unbelievable to have something like this amazing. And if the size itself wasn't overwhelming, he also measured its walls and they were 144 cubits, which is like 12 feet by the human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city of pure gold and clear like glass and the foundation of the walls of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, the first was Jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate oh, wait, that was in Isaiah. The fourth emerald, the fifth ox, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, which could be carbuncles by the time you translate from ancient languages. The eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopus, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made from a single pearl. And the streets of pure gold like transparent glass. I don't even know how to absorb all of that. This is just stunning. But the critical part for the moment, as we look at John chapter 6, is that Jesus quotes from Isaiah 54, verse 13, saying that God will teach them. And in the very previous verses, he describes this phenomenal place of New heaven and new earth. Although they don't know to use that language in Isaiah's day. That has the matching. Foundations of its wall. To those that John gives us in Revelation 21. At the fullness of the new Jerusalem. The new heaven and the new earth. Only this is way bigger and way better than anything Isaiah described. In fact, you could say that Isaiah was. Soft-selling what this was really going to look like. And the idea that God would teach them, he sort of undersold that too. Because it just says, well, God will teach them directly. He'll just directly tell them himself what he wants his people to know. But you left out the part about that happens because God himself comes and lives inside of you. That seems like a pretty big deal to leave out, Isaiah. And Jesus is just now revealing that part. See, here's the irony. It was literally happening right in front of them. God was standing there telling them, teaching them the truth greater and far better than even what Isaiah could have explained to them. But they didn't get it. By tying the presence of the spirit now with these two passages here that Jesus with Isaiah and then recognizing that Isaiah and Revelation 21 are tied together, describing the same structure. Jesus is telling us that the best is still yet to come. It's as if Jesus is saying, you think this is really good? You ain't seen nothing yet. And those. Words are still ringing out for us today. You think this is good, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit in this fleshly body that's broken and falling apart and getting old? And You ain't seen nothing yet, friend. It's going to get real good. It's going to get so good, you ain't going to believe it. In fact, if I told you how good it was going to get, you wouldn't believe it. And Which is why we have such a hard time believing Revelation. He tells us how good it's going to be. and we, There's no way that could happen. But Jesus has to pay a price for it to be this good for us. Even in the here and now, to have the indwelling power of the Spirit, to have daily fellowship with God and intimacy with Him that is unimaginable to the Old Testament saints. Look, it's like... Yeah, if Isaiah could talk to us today, he would say some some things. One of which is like, you have no idea how good you got it but how good we got it and how good we're going to get it came at a big price. It came at the price of Jesus's own flesh and blood because Jesus tells us at the very end here, if anyone eats of this bread, this bread of eternal life, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, Jesus, that's a little dark kind of a statement. It's a little bit scary and like, you know, this isn't, do we have to talk about this right now? It Kind of sounds like death. We don't want really, let's, let's just, let's, can we avoid this? We're going to put a pin in it. Talk about this later. What does Jesus mean by this statement? Well, in that moment, the crowd could not have understood, nor did the apostles. It's clear from everything else that John writes in this book that the apostles didn't even understand it in that moment that the destruction of his flesh in his suffering and on the cross is what Jesus meant by giving his flesh for the world. He gives his flesh as a substitution for our flesh, right? He's on the cross, so you and I don't have to be. That should be a clue for some of you that you should stop putting yourself there. He went there so you didn't have to. For all who see that he is the lamb of God who died in our place and paid our debt to God. All who see this and place their faith in him as their redeemer. He took your place. He took my place. I don't know if you kind of realize you need a redeemer, but I do. I do realize you need a redeemer. But I need one first. And I. I love you, but I want to make sure I get redeemed first before I try to help you get redeemed. You know, it's the old oxygen mask in the airplane philosophy. Put yours on first before you try to help other people get their mask on. So I want to get redeemed first and then let me help you get redeemed. Like I could help you get redeemed, but. I know I need a redeemer. And he is it. He is my substitution. So that I avoid the penalty of my rebellion against our father. And you would think that would be enough, right? At the Passover, the Jews always sing this song, Donata, it is enough. If he had just delivered us from slavery, it would have been enough. If he had just brought us through and crossed over the Red Sea, that would have been enough. If he had just given us the manna in heaven, it would have been enough. If he had just provided water from the rock, it would have been enough. If Jesus had just saved me from the penalty of my rebellion against God, it would have been enough. But just as he was with the people of Israel in the Exodus, so he is today with us. He wants to give us more than just deliverance from death. He wants to give us the enjoyment of new life, which is why he gives us his spirit to dwell within us, to enjoy deep, rich fellowship with our Father in heaven. God, what a God, what a Savior. What a lover of my soul. What a lover of your soul that he would do such a thing. But you know where we're going next. So what? That's right. Thank you, Neva. You guys are finally starting to get it. So what? Thank you for this wonderful theological explanation and it's been intellectually stimulating, but so what? I got to go home after we eat lunch today. And some of us have to go home to unpleasant people after we eat lunch today. So what? Let God teach you. Really, I'm, I'm serious. Let God teach you. I mean, I'm happy to try to do my part as a person who studied the word, but let God teach you, listen to and respond what the Holy Spirit is telling you. If he's calling you to Jesus for salvation, respond with a yes. Please don't respond with a no. And if you do, okay, but I would encourage you to respond with a yes. Respond to what the Holy Spirit is telling you. I realize that hearing God can be difficult. I understand how frustrating it is to not know, is this God or is this just me wanting what I want? It's easy to let our wants masquerade as something God is saying. That is why we test every thought and every desire with the word of God and the counsel of other believers. If you're not sure that God's really telling you to do something, ask. Ask. Seriously, just ask. I don't know if you've noticed, but our culture and society, people generally have no problem telling you what you should do. And so if you ask, is God telling me to do this? They'll be happy to tell you if he's telling you to do this. If you ask me, I'll say, well, let's take a look at the word and see if it says anything about this. But don't ignore... When your spirit is feeling a stirring impression, it is probably the Lord trying to teach you something. Respond to it. Even if he's not actually trying to get you to do something, maybe he's just trying to get your attention. Secondly, okay, I know this is hard for some of you. I know it was hard for me for a long time. Enjoy the fullness of our intimacy and fellowship with God the Father. Yes, you're really supposed to enjoy it. It really is something to enjoy. I know that is hard for us, a lot of us, to embrace and really enjoy fellowship with God for all different kinds of reasons, but do it because you're really supposed to. He really is giving it to us for our enjoyment. Enjoy this fellowship with God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit within us. Look, literally, literally, not figuratively, not metaphorically, literally, the Old Testament prophets longed for what we take for granted. You and I walk through every day as believers in Jesus with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We walk through every day with some kind of interaction with God, the Father. We may not recognize that's what it was just now, but it happens. And the Old Testament prophets ached for that. They longed for it because they didn't get that. Their experience with the Holy Spirit was like, here's a little peace for a little while, but it just rests on you. It don't get to rest inside of you. If Elijah could speak to us today, One of the things he would say to us, I'm absolutely convinced he would say this, is you have no idea how good you have it with the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. In my day, we hoped we could have what you have for just a few minutes, once or twice in our lives. Think about that. Now, I know I made that up. There's no recording anywhere in Scripture that Elijah actually said that. But I'm creating that out of the reality of how the Holy Spirit worked and what Elijah experienced and recorded in Scripture. According to what I can read in Scripture, he never experienced the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit the same way that we do. He fully experienced the fallen resting upon his shoulders power of the Holy Spirit as that chosen prophet for God's purposes. And I'm pretty sure a lot of that was pretty amazing and incredible. But he never had what we have today, us, what we even take for granted. The other thing to remember as you walk out of here is on the hard days, or maybe a better way to say it is on the hard moments of each day, Remember that the best is yet to come and all the heartache and all the hardship we see and experience is going to pass away. It'll all be gone. That doesn't necessarily make it easier to live through it today and tomorrow, but it gives us something to hope in and hold on to while we persevere through the hardships and the heartaches of today. And then lastly, Because of our relationship with Jesus and because we walk with him, right? Two key pieces, our relationship with Jesus and we walk with him. We can live joyfully, even in the hardships and heartaches of this life. As we sang at the end of the service last week, I can face uncertain days because he lives. That song resonates with a truth that we know we desperately need to cling to every day that I can face uncertain days because he lives. The reality of Jesus Christ's physical bodily resurrection from the grave that Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago, that reality that did occur, he lives. He lives still today. And because he still lives today, we can just face whatever's coming. Because... Of our relationship with Jesus, and we walk with Him. If we try to do it without those, all bets are off, and no promises. Right? You, you know, I got no, I got nothing for you if you're going to try to do this without a relationship with Jesus and walking with Him. I literally don't know what to tell you about how to face the difficulties of this world if you're not going to do it with Jesus. I, I got nothing for you. But for all of us who do want to do this with Jesus, it's okay. It's hard. Look, I I know hard, remember? But it's okay. Well, just okay, whatever. Next. Because I'm going someplace. I'm going to be with Jesus. I just got a few steps between here and that moment. And some of them are over some hard stones. And some are over some nice, grassy, smooth spots. And when I get to the grassy, smooth spots, I enjoy them while they last. Thank God for them. Really appreciate you making it easy today. Thank you, Lord. When I get to the hard, rocky spots, I just take one step at a time, holding Jesus's hand. And that's that's what you need to do. That's all I got for you. When you get to the hard, rocky spots in the path, hold Jesus's hand and take one step. That's all I got for you. But that's enough. That's enough. It is enough. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us yourself. Thank you that you promise us so much through your death, burial, and resurrection and that we get to even enjoy it now and even more so in the life yet to come. And thank you, Father, that while we walk through this path and journey that you have each of us on, and by your mercies we get to walk through it together as a church family, thank you for giving us Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and our Redeemer, and the one who holds our hands when we take our first steps into the rocky road. In Jesus' name, amen.